from the newsroom of the Washington Post. Hello, hey Jung. Here's Cindy Isabek from the Washington Post. Hi, this is Beth Reinhardt at the Washington Post. Lori Artani over at the Post. I'm. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, March 17th. Today, what social distancing really means, how long all of this could last, and how to talk to your friends about staying home. When I went to the grocery store the other day, I made sure to stay away from other people. I actually have a pair of fine gloves that I wear so that I'm not touching any surface that could have virus on it. So when I'm doing the touch screen, I checked out that way, came home, took off the gloves, washed my hands. But more important, I am not going out in groups at all. I've been taking walks in the neighborhood with a friend, but we've been keeping our distance. My name is Lena Sun. I'm a reporter for The Washington Post. I cover health and infectious disease, and it seems like all I do these days is think and dream about coronavirus. As the outbreak has become more serious, Lena has been doing this thing that a lot of public officials are talking about, social distancing. This afternoon, we're announcing new guidelines for every American to follow over the next 15 days. As we combat the virus, each and every One of us has a critical role to play in stopping the spread and transmission of the virus. What you heard from the White House on Monday and what I think you will be hearing increasingly from officials from all walks of life is that it's important in order for us to control the spread of this, it's important that people do not congregate in groups. Therefore, my administration is recommending that all Americans, including the young and healthy, work to engage in schooling from home when possible, avoid gathering in groups of more than 10 people, avoid discretionary travel, and avoid eating and drinking at bars, restaurants, and public food courts. There's a whole component to this. Don't touch anyone. Don't hug. Don't kiss. We're human beings. That interaction is so important to us. That emotional affirmation is so important to us. On a larger scale, this is called social distancing, and you see it in the sort of events that have been canceled, right? Basketball games, parades, you know, probably any political rallies, over 50 people. So then what is the goal of all of this? What what is the goal of social distancing? So the goal of social distancing is not to stop it. It's That's already too late. It's to slow the spread. And the reason you want to slow the spread is that you don't want everybody to be getting sick very fast all at once, because then everybody will rush into the hospital and overwhelm the hospital's and the docs and the clinicians on the front line, their ability to take care of the sickest people. So what you want to do is you sort of want to spread that out over time. So it's not so much a surge as like little less surgy, like trickle or wave or so it's a little bit more controllable. Because if everybody gets sick at the same time, We only have a finite number of hospital beds. We only have a finite number of ventilators. Ventilators are what you need if you get really, really sick and your lungs collapse and you need something else to help you breathe. And if you don't get that, you will die. The whole point of these 
social distancing measures has to do with this is a tried and true tactic that has been used in the past to slow the growth of and the explosion in epidemics. During the 1918 great Spanish flu pandemic, two cities took very, very different paths. Philadelphia did not do very much social distancing, and they had many more deaths. And St. Louis and other cities did put some of these measures in place. So the overall flu death rate in Philadelphia was twice as high as it was elsewhere, and the death rate peaked earlier and was eight times St. Louis's death rate. So when people talk about this idea of trying to slow the spread, they've been talking about this thing called flattening the curve, and everyone's talking about the curve and wanting the curve to be as flat as possible. So what what is this curve that people are talking about? So if you think of a graph um, and you draw it so it starts low and then it goes slowly up to a peak and then it comes back down on the other side, that's a curve epidemiologists always refer to this curve. It has to do with the number of cases that are getting diagnosed. And in an epidemic, it starts out slow and then it spreads and it goes way up and then it starts to come down. And if you think about this curve, you want to sort of smush that curve down so it's not such a sharp peak. You want it to be long and stretchy. And if it's long and stretched out and not so high, that means there aren't as many people getting sick all at once and flooding into the hospital. We only have so many hospital beds, only so many ICU beds. We only have so many ventilators. And if everybody taxes the system all at once, the healthcare workers, the doctors, the nurses, they are going not going to be able to take care of you. And then the sickest people will not get the care they need, and we will have many more deaths. Someone described it to me like comparing it to being sick in your family, that if you have four family members, would you rather all of you are struck with the same thing at the same time so nobody can take care of each other? Or would you rather have it take longer, but one person gets sick and then another person gets sick after the first person is better, but then you have the chance of family members being able to be healthy enough to take care of each other? Yes, I think that's a good way to think about it. And, you know, the White House has been um, issuing more and more guidelines. The most recent guidelines have made it clear to people, if there is someone sick in your household, then everybody should self-quarantine for 14 days, which is the incubation period for this virus. Because if you think about it, um, this particular disease is very easily spread among people who have very mild symptoms. And we're also sort of going into allergy season where people might have runny nose and cough uh, and cough and um, is is one of the respiratory symptoms. So people might think they have nothing. They could just have a mild symptom and then they could spread it. What I find really interesting about this term social distancing is that it's something that I think a lot of people have never heard of before. I certainly hadn't heard of it until the start of coronavirus, or at least once the virus got pretty serious. And it's different from a quarantine, because in my mind, a quarantine is something where you are literally like locked into a room. You cannot come into contact with anyone else because it is this urgent health risk. But with something like social distancing, it feels like there's more wiggle room there, that you 
can theoretically leave your house, but you shouldn't come into contact with people or at least shouldn't get close, but you can go to the grocery store. And I feel like that's what's really challenging for people is that there is a lot of room for decision making and for people to make the right or wrong decision. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, I think you couldn't tell people in the United States, do not leave your house. People would go absolutely nuts. Um, And I think it means that you do have to use common sense, right? If you want to go for a walk with a friend and you maintain your distance, it's good to go outside. It's in fresh air. The virus, you know, you're not in a closed space with poor ventilation. Um, On the other hand, you know, it's tough for people to think, wow, it's your cousin's wedding and you really want to go, but then think you're going to be there with 150 people hugging and kissing and drinking, and that is going to spread the virus. I, I want to lay out a few other scenarios for you because I think people remain kind of confused about what the expectations are here with social distancing. And actually, someone who, who listens to the podcast, his name is Jonah, he posted in our Facebook group some various scenarios of like, should I do this or should I not do this? And I was looking at them and I was like, I'm not quite sure like what you're supposed to do in some of these scenarios. So I, I kind of want to just like throw them out at you and see what you think. So to start with. Can I have people over for dinner or can I have like one or two people over to my house for food? Well, what? so I would like to caveat this by saying I am not an infectious disease expert and I am not an epidemiologist. So I don't know if I am going to give you the correct answer. I probably would err on the side of no, because you don't know where Jonah's friend has been if they've been on the subway, if they've been um, in a crowded um, bar the night before, and they could be sick but and infected but not really show it yet, and they come in and you guys sit down for dinner and, you know, are close and all of a sudden, you know, it also spreads on surfaces. So I, I guess I would say... I would say no to that. That's I'm just being more conservative. How about going to the gym? Is that safe? Because I just called my gym and they're definitely open and they're definitely charging a freeze fee for not wanting to have my membership run through April. You know, you don't know how often they're cleaning that equipment, right? If you're going to the gym and if you're the only person there um, and if you wash your hands before you use the equipment and then you work out and you don't touch your face at all for the whole time you're working out. And then afterwards you really wash your hands, maybe. But again, you could get that exercise, Martine, by maybe dropping on the floor and giving me 20. I will have you know, I went running this morning and then I, over the weekend, I bought a kettlebell so that I could have a kettlebell living in my house. So I am well on my way to at-home fitness. Great. (laughs) But the fact that this is, that these are really challenging scenarios to think through and that you have to take so many factors into account when you're deciding whether or not this is something that is safe or that is truly a form of social distancing. I feel like that's part of the challenge, that it relies on a lot of people to make informed and thoughtful decisions, which 
I'm not sure everyone is always capable of doing. I think it's really hard. And I think it's also really hard when you have the public health messaging coming from various officials is not unified. So I think the other day, Trump said, relax, everything will be fine. Then recently, the White House guidance has been, okay, you know, do not gather in groups of more than 10. Uh, This thing may last through July or August. And I believe Devin Nunes was reportedly saying, no, go out, eat and drink. It's okay. So I think when you see this kind of discordant messaging, it's very hard for the public to know exactly who they should trust. And then I think that might be driven by partisanship, right? And what people are seeing on various news um, programs or where they get their news it, it is really, really important when you have a public health crisis that the person who is giving the information is the most trusted person who is most credible. And I just don't think we're seeing that right now. Lena Sun covers health and infectious diseases for The Post. One epidemiologist, they gave me this metaphor. It's like when you have an exterminator come to your house and you say, what is it going to take to get rid of the rats in this basement? I've been too afraid to go down there for weeks. (laughs) And they were saying, you have to first turn on the lights, look at the droppings, figure out what the scope of it is before you even know what you can do to kind of tamp it down. And in the U.S., we basically haven't been capable of turning on the lights yet. Yeah, we're still pretty blind. I'm William Wen. I cover health and science for The Washington Post. So at this point, it feels like people are getting used to this concept that maybe we're all going to have to work from home for a little while. And people's kids are out of school and people are finding ways to kind of build a routine at home. But I think that we're entering this new stage of social distancing where people are asking the question of, How long is this actually going to last? And so, William, I ask you, how long is this going to last? It depends. That's the the honest. I talked to like several epidemiologists and virologists and like pressed them for answers, which they were very reluctant to give. And so in the end, like the most honest, scientifically honest answer is it depends. But I did get a better answer in that before I was thinking you know, the situation will be what it is. We can survive a few weeks. But as I started talking to more of them, it dawned on me that like they're talking about months. They're talking about possibly a year, (laughs) maybe not until we get a vaccine for this um, that's ready to deploy. And so then I started kind of having more discussions with my wife about like, how how are we going to do this? Possibly a year? Well, this is the thing is that even if we overcome like the peak crisis when all the cases are going to be at their height, even if we get on the other side of that, you could have just because you survived one outbreak doesn't mean there's not going to be another. Like all the people mm-hmm. that weren't infected the first time around, they're still vulnerable. 
So all it takes is one case and an outbreak in one city to kind of get the ball rolling again. So when you say that it depends how long this will last, what are the factors that will decide this? There's a lot. There's a, the reason there's so many factors is because so much is unknown. There's a lot of unknowns about the virus itself, but there's also a lot of unknowns about how it is transmitting in America. It's kind of a weird position we're in. We're like a leading nation in the world, but like we are so blind to the condition, like how far it's spread, how deeply it's penetrated communities. Um, so like all of these other countries, we're comparing our numbers to those. But the reality is we have no real numbers. The numbers we're seeing are probably just a fraction of the real kind of situation. Hmm. And then you have countries like China and South Korea that clamped down really early on and, and seemed like they took more aggressive steps earlier on in the process to try to get some kind of containment happening. From their models, is there a sense that of, of how quickly they're getting through this and whether that's something that could be in store for the U.S.? Yeah, so everyone I talked to talks about peaks in the epidemiology world. Um, so I started asking them, well, how long until we reach our peak? In China, first outbreak when it appeared until the peak of it in China was two months, but it was really a month from the time authorities really understood the gravity of the situation. In South Korea, it was even shorter. It was half a month from emergence to peak. But like in the US, we're still pretty blind. Like widespread testing is not available right now. And you mentioned the fact that there is also the potential for the outbreak to subside a little bit, but then for there to be a second outbreak. Is there a concern either among officials here in the U.S. or even for countries like South Korea and China that have gotten a better handle on this, that that you don't want to back off the social distancing and the travel restrictions too quickly? For sure. So China's past its peak. You have schools starting to reopen. They've taken down these those kind of instant hospitals that they stood up in Wuhan. But if you talk to people there, like there's still a lot of restrictions. The government is they're using these apps to like surveil everywhere you go uh, so that they can trace who you've coming into contact when it's discovered that you have the disease. So there's like a lot of restrictions still in place in these countries, no, most notably in China. So you know how everyone was banning Chinese travelers from coming to their country. China is now banning the opposite, hmm. travelers from coming back into their country because they're worried about the infection sparking again. And then what about this question of immunity? Like, if people are getting the virus now, does that mean that they're at least kind of out of the pool of who could contract this in the future? Or are people able to contract it multiple times? This is the thing that kind of boggled my mind is like how much we don't know about it. We don't even know whether, for sure, whether if you've been infected once and recover, that you have long-lasting immunity. And even if you have that, like how long is that? Is it a year, uh, 10 years, 20 years? And so that will affect how we have to deal with this virus going forward. Trump and other people have expressed this hope, this, this very optimistic, rosy hope that, you know, with the coming of spring and summer, this flu might somehow disappear. And there's precedent for this. Like, that's how the flu essentially works. But it's, it's really unclear with this virus whether season will have any effect. If it does, maybe we'll get a break for a few months in the spring and summer. We can all, like, 
send our kids back to school, we can all like hmm. kind of figure out and regroup and get ready for the fall and winter when it hits again. Hmm. But no one knows if that's actually going to happen. So it seems like in the absence of a lot of information about how this virus works and how it's transmitted, that that social distancing and and social behaviors are the biggest factor that we have some kind of control over. This is true. So like there's no vaccine for this. We don't know what kind of antiviral drugs work. Essentially, social distancing is like the one kind of key weapon we can use. And so people actually following what experts are telling them is like the medicine that is going to cure us as a nation in some ways. But it's it's tough. I mean, you know, like I have two kids and <laughs> I, can I, hear don't them. <laughs> I don't know how long I'm going to be able to hold up this whole trapped in a house with the entire family. But what I find also interesting is that it's actually just become more tempting for people to not practice social distancing and to go outside and to go places. Because not only are people getting stir crazy, but all of a sudden flights are dirt cheap to go wherever you want to go. Traffic is really light. Restaurants, or at least the restaurants that remain open, that all of a sudden they're empty and it's easy to get reservations wherever you want to go. So it kind of feels like there's this prisoner's dilemma situation where it's easy to tell yourself, well, if I'm the only person who's going out, then we'll be fine and everyone else just needs to stay in. But if enough people break that, then that's how we end up having this whole exercise be ineffective and basically useless. It is. That is like a very real thing that I'm experiencing in my life, like the temptation to, you know, like you get stir crazy. But, you know, one thing that I was noticing is there's this kind of like social shaming that's going on in society. Right now where I think it's kind of like similar to environmentalism and recycling where people kind of judge you if they see you. Oh, and at first I was like, oh, people are so judgy. Come on. Like everyone is making their own decisions. Like you don't know what the, but you know, after talking to some of these epidemiologists, I'm, I'm starting to think like maybe like the judgy thing is not a bad thing. I mean, you need peer pressure. To, if peer pressure gets everyone to stop smoking, maybe that's like not a bad thing, you know? William One is a health reporter at The Post. So if a little peer pressure is actually not a bad idea, how do you do it in a way that's actually effective? Reporter Caroline Kitchener had this question when she woke up this past Sunday morning, opened up Instagram, and saw two very different kinds of posts. There were people who were, you know, taking photos of themselves on their couch with their cat, like lots of pictures of cats, lots of pictures of, you know, what they were watching on Netflix. And then there were photos and videos of people out at parties. And the cats and Netflix people were really mad at the people who chose to go out to parties in the middle of a public health crisis. What you saw was the people who stayed in kind of shaming the people who went out, you know, taking pictures of the bars and, you know, how could you? It's so selfish. And that's probably not going to change people's minds. So at 7 a.m. on a Sunday morning, I emailed 10 different experts and was like, I'm really sorry that I'm emailing you at this hour on this day. But I think we all saw the pictures of the bars last night. And I want to help people talk to their friends. 
And I was like shocked at how many got back to me fast. Um, actually, one of the experts that I spoke to was like, oh, I had like promised myself that I wasn't going to talk to any more media, but this is so important. We need people to talk to their friends. It is an awkward thing to do, to, to tell your friends that they shouldn't be getting together and having a good time. But what it's, it's really important to recognize right now are we all have a role to play in yeah. this. And we all have friends, loved ones who are at higher risk for this disease. So Crystal Watson is a health security expert at Johns Hopkins University. And, you know, she made the point that as awkward as these conversations can be, as much as we might not want to have them, this kind of social pressure can really make a difference. Um, People going up to their friends and, you know, saying, hey, this isn't cool, that can really make a difference. So I think what I would do, and I probably will do because I do – I, I'm on Instagram and I, I have seen this, is get in touch with those people directly. People don't like to be called out in public. So I would maybe either send them a, a message or give them a call and just say, hey, I'm really worried about this. I'm worried about you. I really think that we should be taking this seriously. And so um, I hope you think twice next time. Like it's it's one thing for some, you know, CDC official or some, you know, more likely some, you know, professor or expert at such and such university to say something. You're not as invested in, in what they think. And so I think in this scenario, friends have a lot of power to change this situation. Caroline Kitchener is a staff writer for The Lily. that's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. If you're practicing social distancing and maybe going a little bit stir-crazy, now is a better time than ever to join the Post Reports group on Facebook. That's where a lot of our listeners are talking through their coping mechanisms for working from home and sharing some of the things that they've been seeing and reading in the past few days to understand what's going on. It's a great place to find a sense of community during these challenging times. To join, go to facebook.com slash group slash post reports. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat, available now. 